0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Rugby Lineout podcast. Uh, pleased to say that uh, although I said last week I was probably due to the pressures of work over the next couple of months, only going to be able to get one of these out uh, once every other week. Uh, fortunately, this week got a bit of a break and I'm uh, able to, uh, for two consecutive weeks, be able to get one out. Although probably next week uh, I won't be able to. But we'll see how it goes. But anyway, a couple of things to talk about this week. Uh, first of all, was very fortunate in getting to go to my first uh, Arrows home game of the season this year at York Lions Stadium, in which they faced off against the New England Free Jacks. Um, I'm going to be completely honest. Unfortunately, that's about the only positive thing I can say about the experience. But I'll talk about that in a minute. So we will be talking about that. Um Also, talking about the women's Six Nations, which resumed last weekend and uh, continues this weekend. A little bit on Super Rugby and the impact uh, of the Pacific Island, two Pacific Island teams in the competition, especially after last weekend's historic match in Apia, Samoa for Moana Pacifica. I'm a look, very quick look at uh, Leinster's kind of almost sea. Team, if you like, uh, touring South Africa for the last two rounds of the uh, URC regular season games, and which once again just highlights what an enormous bank of talent depth and talent and depth uh, Leinster has. And then, lastly, but not least, very important, especially because uh, in this podcast, we've talked a lot in the last couple of weeks, uh, really ever since the Six Nations, about uh, inconsistencies in refereeing and officiating and a possible move to address some of those concerns, particularly in the way in which they sap momentum out of a game uh, with this idea of the quote, TMO bunker, unquote, that is being put forward to be trialed in this summer's under-20 championship and then hopefully being adopted for the World Cup. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, There was lots of other things, but those are basically the things that really um, struck me uh, that came out of last week. So without any further ado, let's get into it. So let's start off with... The toronto arrows uh how okay. um so yeah like i said my son and i went to uh york lions stadium on saturday for our first uh uh match um not the arrows first match it was their second home game of the season but our first um game that we got to watch in person at york lions stadium we were really excited about it Uh, Obviously, we knew that it was a bit of a daunting task playing the Free Jacks as uh, the second best team, sorry, not the second best team, as the best team in the Eastern uh, Conference and basically essentially one of the best teams in the league, full stop. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, after that narrow loss the weekend before to the New York Ironworkers, who were also, you know, first of all, defending champions from last year, we went with a sense of cautious optimism. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to be completely honest. What we got treated to instead of a good day out was a record defeat in the MLR as Toronto went down 80 points to five to New England. And I'm sorry, I get, I just have to be honest. It was a truly awful fan experience in the stands. The fans themselves, as always, were absolutely fantastic. But the way in which the game was run by the organizers at the stadium meant that the rugby instead of being the focus of the evening, was treated almost like a sideshow. You know, disappointed fans left the stadium half dead with their, you know, sort of half deaf, with their their ears bleeding from an what can only be described as like an oral onslaught of music and ridiculous drivel from the sidelines. It's a game that was completely forgettable, compounded Toronto's miseries this season. Um, You know, and I think what was really concerning about it you know, there were many things concerning about it, both from a fan perspective and the actual rugby itself. But overall, you know, there was this sense that Toronto's, you know, the Arrow's season at home seems in no better shape than on the road. Um, and, you know, I think that was, it was really disappointing. I want to start, though, by saying that, uh, right up front since day one I have been and I know many people in Toronto have been uh, and will continue to be staunch Arrow supporters Um, of that there is absolutely no question whatsoever Um, and I think you know all of us um, have nothing but respect for for team owner Bill Webb and his vision of bringing rugby to Toronto we we stand by his efforts and the team's efforts and we salute all of you, uh, you know, I salute all of you, uh, hands down. You know, I've met Bill Webb a couple of times. He's a great guy, super, super guy. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I can only wish him the very, very best. However, I I think it has to be said, and I, I hope that this somehow gets taken on board. What we experienced last Saturday at York Stadium at our first Arrows game of the season, put that support to the ultimate test. And it left us not exactly bubbling with enthusiasm to go back for more. What we've loved about Arrows home games in the past was, you know, the fun family atmosphere, you know, my 11 year old son loves going to Arrows games and the ability to watch rugby here in Toronto and get behind your local team. To be honest, we weren't able to do any of that on Saturday. And if truth be told, left the stadium with a sigh of relief, not convinced we would be coming back anytime soon. We fully appreciate that the organizers need to create an atmosphere in the stands, but it was downright obnoxious on Saturday and we weren't the only ones fuming at at what was going on. You know, I was sitting in those stands and I could hear people sitting in the rows behind me, people sitting in the rows in front of me just saying, turn the damn music down. Um, this is a rugby game. We're trying to watch what's going on and understand what's going on. We're trying to hear referee decisions where it was just ridiculous. Um, You know, we'd paid good money to watch a rugby game, not have our ears continuously assaulted at full volume by the strangest mix of god awful music I've heard in years. And don't get me wrong, you know, like myself and like hundreds of other people in the stands, we love a good tune to rally the troops. However, whoever was running the sidelines entertainment, if indeed you could call it that on Saturday, seemed to be completely unaware that there was a rugby game in progress. You know, the music blared onto pitch onto the pitch as players were trying to set, set up for kicks during line out throws, any kind of stoppage due to referee arbitrations or when they were setting up for scrums. You know, like the scrums would be starting and, you know, twenty seconds into the the scrum, whilst calls were being made in the scrum, you know, the music's blaring out across the pitch. People are setting up for line out, you know, for the line out, even the first couple of seconds of the line out are drowned out by obnoxious music you know no wonder our lineouts were a shamble they probably couldn't hear the calls half the time um you know no respect for kickers kickers lining up setting up for their kicks there's loud obnoxious music blaring across the pitch it was just awful um you know like i say it it just to me it just showed a, a a gross lack of respect to fans and players alike If we wanted to go to a rock show, rave, we'd have you know a a crappy rave rock show. We'd have bought tickets for Coachella or something like that. You know, I think the one thing that the organizers, uh, you know, in, in 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 Arrow's games here in Toronto, need to understand. And I don't think it's just Toronto. Like I remember watching Austin last year; it was the same deal. Maybe it's not such an issue in the states, but particularly I think here in Toronto. People are going to an Arrows game because they're there, because they're rugby aficionados. Yeah, sure, they want to have a good time in the stands and maybe have a couple of beers and, you know, cheer on the team. And, you know, when we score a try, which we didn't really do at all on Saturday, but, you know, have some celebratory music and stuff. But they're aficionados. They appreciate the subtleties and the intricacies of the game. That's what they're there to watch. And they don't want to miss out on that or not be able to talk to each other because the music is so loud at any time when the action isn't going on that they can't hear themselves think it was just it was just awful and you know as i say your fan base here in toronto they know and appreciate their rugby and that's the reason they're there first and foremost they're not there for the entertainment they're there for the rugby and that got lost i think on saturday which i think was really really unfortunate Excuse me. As for the rugby itself, well, what can we say? Um, Toronto's ongoing problem with a complete lack of any sort of defensive organization continued to plague them, as they le- leaked ten tries. And add insult to injury, their their discipline was was really poor, um, which helped add another two penalty tries to that ten try count. Um, Their set piece work, you know, kind of remains a bit of a minefield of lost opportunity and with it, their discipline as well. I mean, their discipline wasn't good. Um, I'll be honest, I did feel that at times the officiating of referee Paolo Duarte left a bit to be desired. But by the same token, Toronto's sloppy organization really didn't help their cause and set them up. It just ended up setting them up for failure more often than not. But for me, and I think for many people watching that game, um, the glaring problem that's manifested itself all season continued with a vengeance. And that is that Toronto is just missing too many first-up tackles. And against a team like the Free Jacks, that's already basically nailed your coffin coffin shut before being put 10 feet under, as was the case with the 85 scoreline, 80-5 to scoreline. You know, I thought it was really unfortunate, I think, after being the hero of the weekend last weekend. Uh, the Arrows decided that somehow winger uh, Deshaun Bowen would somehow single-handedly rescue them uh, for the full 80 minutes. Uh, I lost track of how many times they would simply kick or pass him the ball with little, if any, support. and hope that he could somehow perform miracles. Um, to give him his credit, he was one of the few standout players last weekend and despite the increasingly alarming scoreline as the game progressed, he just simply refused to quit. He put in some critical tackles, I felt, at times. He ran like a man possessed whenever he got the ball. He made one or two bad judgment passes, uh, and he did miss one or two tackles. But he was playing his heart out out there. Um, but, you know, other than that, you know, I thought Ross Brow- uh, Browdy had a good game at times. But other than that, I struggled to find anybody else worthy of a, of a notable mention. Um, But I think also one of the things that really struck me about that game was if you looked at the Free Jacks lineup, it boasted four former Arrows players. Front rowers, Andrew Quatrain and Cole Keith, center Ben Lesage and fullback Spencer Jones. And all of those four contributed contributed massively to the Free Jacks routing of Toronto last Saturday and also fellow Canadian international Connor Keys in the second row. He had a big impact uh, for the Free Jacks. So that's five Canadian players um, and, you know, a couple of internationals in there. Four of them arrows, all of whom had a huge impact with Toronto uh, last year. And, you know, and, 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 and in Toronto's initial success in the MLR. And you have to ask yourself why such players can't be kept. Furthermore, many of the South African, uh, South American internationals who who just really lit up the pitches for the arrows in the last couple of years they're no longer with the team instead what we seem to have ended up with this year is a group of very green canadian development players and a mix of canadian internationals and decidedly middle of the road overseas players who seem to be past their prime you know they they've managed to keep the services of scrum half ross browdie um, but even he seems to have lost some of the sparkle he had from last year you know a gift Toronto, some, some leniency here, you know, they've got an injury list from hell, which is not helping their cause right now. Most notably, uh, keeping fly half Sam Malcolm out of contention, uh, for the game against the free Jacks last weekend. And that's certainly not helping and it's helping to, it's certainly having an impact in, in making this last half of the season look to be a pretty painful conclusion to the 2023 MLR season for Toronto. You know, when you go back to why can't we keep good players? I fully appreciate that, you know, the sky high cost of living in Toronto has probably made it harder for the arrows to keep and attract quality players compared to what say they could make in the States. You know, and I know to a certain degree, you see that that is a common theme in sports in in general in Canada, you know, look at the NHL, for example. But if that is genuinely the case, and given, you know, that rugby doesn't have the kind of fan and support base that say hockey does, then we have to kind of wonder how long the franchise, you know, the the Arrows as Canada's sole entry in the MLR can remain viable. And, you know, that has pretty well put, you know, a long rumored second franchise in Vancouver, as far as I'm concerned, if you ask me out of the question, because Vancouver is even more expensive than Toronto. You know, like I say, I have enormous respect for team owner Bill Webb and what he's trying to do with the arrows and for the rugby community in Toronto and Canada as a whole, like absolutely massive respect. Um, but I just couldn't help feeling from the minute you entered the grounds last weekend, none of that vision was honored. The rugby was a very poor quality and the fan experience was downright painful. I think, you know, while fixing the arrows ongoing problems on the pitch, this season is probably a lot more complex and difficult. I think one thing, rectifying that pretty mediocre fan experience last weekend is pretty simple. And I really hope that, uh, you know, um, when my son and I go back for our next Arrows game, that will have been addressed. And, uh, you know, from from friends that we know going to the the Sunday's game against the Seawolves, which unfortunately due to work, I won't be able to attend, uh, we'll hear a much more positive uh, feedback. So, you know, I'll be back. I will continue to support the Arrows. I will go back. Um, But I think, you know, until then, the Arrows and their management know they have a lot of work to get through. As for the team itself, you know, there's some good players on that team. There's some committed players. And, you know, I know, based on seasons past, you you guys have got this in you, boys. So onwards and upwards, and let's get on with it. So that was the toronto arrows next up we're talking about um the women's six nations and it's a tough one you know um like i say i've talked up women's rugby a lot in the last six months and uh you know deservedly so and rightly so um and i'm also enjoying the women's six nations but i think you know what what it has you know the the first three rounds of this year's tournament have have shown is the (coughs) Excuse me, sort of massive gulf between England and France and the rest of the competition. You know, I think as as entertaining as some of the rugby is and as brave as some of the teams have been, there's no denying that the playing field of women's rugby in the infancy of its professional era is very uneven, Um, especially in Europe. You know, we I I think that's just so far from what I've seen of the women's Six Nations. um, It's 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 painfully obvious You know, I think England and France are in such a league of their own. It it resembles almost a two tier competition, with sort of Italy and Wales being the two most dominant sides. If if you were saying there was a Division One and a Division Two of of women's Six Nations rugby, you know, I think so far Italy have been the only side able to stand up to France. And I think, as a result, this weekend's uh, match between Wales and France in Grenoble, it's going to be fascinating to see if Wales can do the same. And, you know, in the interim, uh, with the exception of possibly France, I think England seemed untouchable by anyone. But I think after watching Wales and Scotland get completely outplayed by England and France last weekend, um, you had to ask yourself if perhaps the Women's Six Nations in its current format isn't more like a version of the Heineken Champions Cup and Challenge Cup competitions. You know in the former you essentially have two teams competing for silverware England and France with everyone else on a more sort of level playing field in the challenge cup with Italy and Wales clearly starting to look like the two dominant teams of that sort of second tier I think in fairness to both Wales and Scotland they managed to give their English and French opponents a decent scrap for the first 30 minutes last weekend after which Let's be honest, the, the damn wall burst in both matches. You know, in the Ireland game against Italy, even the Irish managed to remain in the match for the first half hour. And although the floodgates didn't exactly open in the same way they did in Carniff and Van, it, it still wasn't comfortable viewing if you're an Irish supporter. <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, there is no denying that there is a ton of heart and commitment in all six of the teams. But only England and France appear to look like they have made that sort of quantum leap to professionalism. Italy and Wales are extremely promising works in progress. And I think there are some positive signs starting to emerge from Scotland. However, I think there's no denying that in the Northern Hemisphere, England and France are completely and utterly in a league of their own when it comes to women's rugby. I mean, I kind of looked at an alternate format for the Six Nations, um, where you did actually have sort of a champions and a challenge cup type setup. In the Champions Cup, you'd have England and France with either Italy or Wales. And like I said before, I think the result of this game this weekend between Wales and Italy will be, um, sorry, between Wales and France will tell us much about who really is the best of the rest. So, you know, if you had a sort of a challenge cup uh, in addition to the top three, it would most likely be Wales, Scotland and Ireland. And then you know, the winner of that sort of challenge series would be promoted each year to play England and France the following year and the wooden spoon holders of the champions tournament, you know, demoted to to the challenge competition. So like, you know, for example, if you had, uh, England, France and Italy playing this year in the sort of a champions cup level and Wales, Scotland, and Ireland in the Challenge Cup level. So let's say that uh, <clears throat> out of the Champions Cup competition, Italy finished last, and Wales finished first in the in the next tier down below it, then Wales would be promoted to play England and France next year, and Italy dropped down and vice versa. I appreciate that that's kind of controversial, um, but it maybe it's possibly a way to start shrinking the gulf in skill levels and professionalism between France, England, and everyone else. I'm not sure, but let's be honest, with two rounds to go, there's only really two genuinely intriguing fixtures left in this competition. And that's the one between Wales and Italy this weekend and England and France in round five. Like I say, it's not to discredit the efforts of any of the teams by any stretch of the imagination. I, I huge you know shout out to all six teams, but given the significant gaps in both resources and skills available to each of the participating countries, Maybe a temporary rebalancing act may be worth considering. Dunno. Um, so yeah, that's women's six nations. Uh Super Rugby Pacifica. Um just I thought it was fantastic watching uh Wanda Pacifica play in Apia last weekend. Um you know, I think in a way the Fijian Drua have ended up being the tournament's most cherished project this season. Um but I think, you know, that first historic game in Samoa showed just how vibrant rugby is in the islands, um, you know, Fiji and us seem invincible on home soil. I mean, although they lost Mona Pacifica's first ever game in in their native Samoa was a resounding success and I think a superb advertisement for both the competition and the sport, highlighting just how important these two sides are to the tournament by lending it some sort of genuine international flavor. Um, Despite not getting the result they wanted, I loved watching Wana Pacifica make history and play in front of their real, quote, home crowd, unquote, in LPS Samoa last weekend. They may ultimately have emerged on the wrong side of the scoreline, but they did so in a performance that oozed commitment, heart and passion and no shortage of skill. Hate to say it, something our own arrows could take on board. It was all backed up by scenes of absolute joy in the stands as the people of Samoa got to watch their heroes bravely battle a quality red side. It was a rugby spectacle, and the enthusiasm both on and off the pitch, just like the Pidgey and Drua's two home games to date, was infectious. Despite Moana Pacific remaining winless so far in this year's Super Rugby Pacific competition, they have still managed to provide a bucket load of entertainment in all their games and put on display some genuine skill and ambition. They may not be quite you know, the movie stars of Pacific Island rugby in the same way the 100-mile era Pidgey and Drua are, but it's still a project worth sticking with. You know, the Fijian Drua have come into their own this year, especially with a good number of games held in Fiji, and it's my hope that we'll see more of Moana Pacifica's home games take place in the islands in future editions of the tournament. I mean, the Drua are rapidly becoming one of the biggest viewing draws in Super Rugby. By promoting the Pacific Island aspect of Super Rugby, it not only develops the global game, but also adds a much-needed international element to Super Rugby, which the competition I felt was in danger of losing with the departure of the South African teams and Argentina's Jaguares. Furthermore, and perhaps most important of all, the boost to the fortunes of the Pacific Island sides in the World Cup will be enormous. So yeah, bring it on. Leinster, their C team essentially down in South Africa gets an A grade um, as some of its younger stars come of age. I mean, inspirational fly Sam Prendergast, uh, the under under twenties. Player for Ireland and his Leinster colleagues were exceptional in their comeback defeat of the Lions last weekend in URC. And it just showed once again this sort of seemingly limitless talent bank bank that Leinster seems to have access to continue. Uh, it just continues to grow. So no, I'm not going to ask the inevitable questions as to whether or not Leinster fly half pendergast is the new Johnny Sexton. However, I won't add my I won't hide my admiration for the Ireland under 20 star along with a decidedly B, even C-looking Leinster squad putting on such a show in South Africa for the final two rounds of regular URC season games at the moment. You know, what it does serve to illustrate, though, once more, is the truly staggering depth that Leinster seems to have access to, both now and for the future. You know, while the accolades are pouring in that essentially paint Leinster as a genuine superpower in club rugby, it's hard to argue against the fact that this is a very special team indeed. Indeed. The likes of which we probably haven't seen in club rugby. Um, New Zealand's Crusaders are probably their their equivalent in the Southern Hemisphere. they you know I would say they're on the same level. Everything Leinster does it just looks effortless, and I I've yet to see a better organized or more creative team this year. I take exception to the ridiculous comments made by former England international and commentator Brian Moore and others that Leinster have been gifted their progress this year and a place in the Heineken Cup final come May. You know, perhaps they had the rub of the draw in the pool stages and a gentle run into their semi-final clash with all their games being played at Fortress Aviva in Dublin. But there's no denying they've, the fact that they've looked good for it. What's more is their unbeaten streak of 24 games so far since that narrow loss last year to La Rochelle in the Heineken Cup final should silence most of their critics. I mean, they should breeze their way through to a URC final, but there are no guarantees that they'll be playing in a home Heineken Cup final. To do that, they'll have to get past a red-hot Toulouse, admittedly also at the Aviva. But the French side, who are the top team in the top 14 this year, have just got better and better with each game in the Champions Cup, a bit like the French national side. You know, Toulouse are peaking at just the right time, and the question remains, just like last year, have Leinster done so too early, especially as they will be without the services of Johnny Sexton? However, after having watched Pendergast in action along with Ross Byrne in the Round 2 Six Nations Ireland-France game, I'd have to argue that the above concern is kind of a bit of a minor technicality now. I mean, Leinster will have a much sterner test this weekend against the Bulls, but if this current Leinster side of relative unknowns on tour in South Africa can pull it off, that is very hard to see anything but a clean sweep of both the URC and the Heineken Cup for the men in blue and that cherished fifth European star on their jersey. If that genuinely ends up being the case, you know, then perhaps Irish supporters can really start to believe that this World Cup is the one in which they finally can sign their quarterfinal hoodoo to the graveyard of history. And then lastly, a little bit on officiating. Uh, essentially, as I said on the blog, time to bunker down. I'll be honest and say I really like this idea, and I hope it gets adopted not only for the upcoming World Cup, but for the game as a whole post the global showdown in France. What is it, I hear you ask. Well, contrary to popular belief, it's not Matthew Renault and Yaco Paper hiding in some sort of armor-plated bunker in the heart of a bombed-out World Rugby Headquarters building in Dublin. I'm sure that, that, like me, you're tired of the endless stoppages we now see across the board at both club and test level, where momentum gets sapped out of the game as the officiating team of TMOs, the referee, and his on-field assistants debate the issue of whether or not the laws determine it to be a yellow or red card based on a variety of mitigating circumstances. What World Rugby is proposing as a solution to this and is trialing in the summer's under-20s championship is the idea of a TMO bunker. If successful, it will be used during the World Cup in France starting in September. The concept is very simple. Red cards for obvious and blatant foul play will be handed out by the on-field referee on the spot. So essentially, there are no changes there. However, in situations in which the decision is far from clear-cut and requires some extensive video analysis to determine the level of foul play, whether it was accidental or not, level of danger, and so on, it has been agreed that the time it takes to do this should not bring a halt to the momentum of the game or have the on-field decision influenced by 50,000 partisan fans in the stands. Consequently, what would happen now is that once a case of foul play has been observed but there is a lack of consensus as to whether or not it's a yellow or a red card, the offending player will be issued a yellow card. In the 10 minutes while he's in the sin bin, a dedicated team of television match officials will view all video footage and determine whether or not it's a yellow or needs to be upgraded to a red card. If it is a yellow card, then the player returns to the field after 10 minutes, but if that card is deemed worthy of an upgrade to a red, he remains off the pitch for the remainder of the game and is not allowed to be replaced, reducing his team to 14 players for the rest of the match. This would go a long way to ending some of the recent controversies and heat of the moment decisions, such as Freddie Stewart's unfortunate red card against Ireland and the Six Nations, or Zach Mercer's unmerited sending off in the recent Champions Cup clash between Exeter and Montpellier. Furthermore, without sapping the momentum of the game, it also removes the risk of on-field referees being overwhelmed by crowd pressure and making incorrect decisions. In short, I'm in favor of it, plain and simple. Next door to business, please, world rugby, consistency in officiating. But hopefully, this is a step in the right direction. So that's it for this week, folks. Back to the grindstone uh, tomorrow. So probably no missive for me next week. We'll see how busy work gets. Until then, take care, stay safe, and hopefully, last weekend's tease of summer will return with a vengeance sooner rather than later. Take care, folks. Talk to you soon.